hopefully a good sign of more moisture for us. I know we don't want a lot of snow, I'm sure, but we need the moisture. We have the call to worship. God calls us and calls the world. We are blessed and privileged by the Spirit working in us to come willingly in the day of His power. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Bow hearts and heads and sound a preparation for worship. Let us turn to him 
Help us, God, to continue to breathe our breath, Lord, of praise to you and our entire life, God, and to you alone. And that all that we do, Lord, will always ultimately, at the end of the day, God, and be because we desire to honor you in all that we do. Help us, we pray to that end, Lord, to be with us this evening, God, that we would be here, not just bodily, but, Lord, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength to praise you and to hear your word that we may be encouraged to carry on with our duty this week. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 145D. One four five D.
We wish to honor and praise you all our days, God Almighty, and although we may not at every moment have those words in our head, God, but that it is our heart song, it is our dedication, Lord, when we are asked, this is what we desire. And uh, Lord, meanwhile, we are called to do our duties before you, to take care of our responsibilities here in this world, and these are the ways in which we honor and obey you and express our love and gratitude towards you. Help us to that end, Lord, that we would persevere therein by your strength and mercy. We pray in particular, Lord, this evening as your people, those concerned about issues in our lives and with each other, God Almighty, we pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters and the families and churches that are persecuted across this world, especially, God, in China and North Korea. Terrible things that have happened, especially in North Korea, Africa and the Middle East, Lord, and the persecution and the hatred and the, uh, Lord, wars and civil wars that occur in which Christians are caught in the crossfire, God, and their purposed aim, Lord, some of these wicked men to destroy the church, destroy anybody who even has a hint of disagreeing with them. Help them, we pray, Lord, to stand firm, to do their calling and duty, that they would continue to preach the truth and to Stand for the truth, God, that you would give them pastors after your own heart, Lord, and leaders to protect them, body and soul, and God, places to meet for worship, especially give them the word of God, we pray and ask that you continue to work through those ministries, many of whom we don't know anything about, God, but we know there, because America, you have blessed with so much, God, that we have a bounty that we have given to the world many times over in many ways. We think in particular, Lord, of Middle East Reform Fellowship, MRFF, in which they have for decades, God, uh, telegraph the truth, Lord, through transmission, Cyprus Island, God, across the Middle, Middle East there, that they would continue to be blessed by your providence, Lord. People would hear the truth, the Muslims in particular, and are start asking questions to break them from the darkness that binds them. Help them, we pray, and help others to that end, God Almighty, that your church and your name would be established in the Middle East again. We I lift up, God, our... A hearts to you for those who are erring, who have uh, denied important truths of your word. Uh, those, Lord, who have denied not just words, God, perhaps the mouth, the proper teaching of your word, but in practice, God, in their life, and they violate the Ten Commandments and don't care, or whatever reason they have, God, we pray for them. We know some in churches, we know some in our family, God, that name the name of Christ, but, Lord, refuse to live like a Christian in many ways. Uh, both, again, with their mouth and with their feet. We ask, Lord, Spirit of Truth, that you would help us to speak to them, to urge them, to pray for them, to be patient with them, God, if need be. Often, I think, Lord, we, we struggle, Lord, exactly what to say, and so we ask for an understanding of how to deal with them. Sometimes we find ourselves not able to say anything, God. But we, our hearts go out to them that they would come back to the fold, come back to the truth, uh, both in doctrine and practice, God Almighty. Pray for the purity of your truth and for ourselves, that we would not fall away. We would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, God, and always depend upon you. We ask in particular, Lord, for this nation to have godly laws and godly lawmakers. We certainly have many good laws, Lord God Almighty, in your providence. And we're thankful for that, Lord, part of our tradition in America, but other wicked laws that have sprung up over the generations. 
And uh, they are still with us, God. We pray that they would be overthrown like Roe v. Wade was overthrown, Lord. And so we pray to that end and work to that end as best we can, God. We feel very limited, of course, and uh, impotent in many ways. And indeed, we are, God. And may we acknowledge to the extent that we are. There's nothing we can do, Lord, and not be unduly frustrated. But certainly, Lord, be grieved in our hearts that these wicked things are allowed to occur. We ask God again for godly leaders, Christian men uh, who know the nation we live in, and the laws that we need, especially laws, your laws, Lord, and the applications in accordance to your black and white laws of the Ten Commandments. But barring that, God, may we have some kind of leaders, Lord, that have a good understanding of the right and wrong anyways, even if they're not Christians. And such men have existed in our nation. We pray for them again, God, for the sake of our neighbors, because we love them, because it is good for them to have good leaders and good laws, both locally and on the national level, and both, God, in the law courts, especially with judges and making just and righteous decisions, we pray, that we have more such judges and those who would perpetuate unrighteousness and wickedness and unfairness in the courts and our laws and our leadership, uh, Lord, would be thrown out of office and uh, brought out of the way and certainly brought to repentance, we pray, Almighty God. And so, God Almighty, we pray for your mercies upon this nation and that she would change in many ways, both uh, different areas and different purposes and reasons, God. There's wickedness all over the place that can make us depressed if we looked at it all the time. Help us, God, to look at the things that are right, to know that you are in charge, and to do what we can do and deal with our part of the life we find ourselves in. We pray for ourselves. Lord, in particular, for our sanctification, for our growth in holiness and obedience to your word. Help us, God, to be more like Jesus, we pray. Uh, more loving, more understanding, more fruit of the Spirit, Lord, and more understanding of your word, and to believe in it, and to teach one another, and to encourage one another, we pray. Help us, we ask God Almighty, that we be made and renewed day by day in the image of Christ Jesus, and to eschew and flee wickedness and temptation thereunto, God, and to work as best we can again, in the small little part of the world that we find ourselves in, that we could have a a rifle that is a righteous and a holy community here in the Church of Providence and all of the such churches that name the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. For your glorious name's sake, amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Almighty God, we are grateful for the generous providence you've bestowed upon us that we can give these tithes and offerings. Bless the givers, we pray, God Almighty, and bless and multiply the use therein for your kingdom's sake and for the good of those in the body of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. First Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 5. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let us pray. Gracious Spirit of truth, may these words sink into our hearts again if we've forgotten them. And may, Lord, they strengthen and encourage us, God, uh, to stick to the truth, to stick to the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and not in how clever, Lord, we think we can be in bringing people to heaven. With our words, we know we stumble, as Paul perhaps stumbled. He did not come with excellence of speech. And we certainly feel that way often, God, when we talk to our family members or our friends, Lord. May we always, regardless of how we speak, trust and believe that you have the power to save souls, Lord, in spite of how good or how terrible we speak, as Paul is urging the Corinthians, Lord, not to fall into such a trap of division, but rather to focus upon the power and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul continues, I think we can all see here, his reprimand of the Christians at Corinth. He first urged them to recall, back in verse 10, to unity, to be of the same mind, and then jumped into the diatribe against disunity, division, and factionalism for these many verses into the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Reminder again, the chapter divisions are completely artificial. (laughs) And uh, they're they're there to help us find something real quick. But here it breaks up the thought, because Paul hasn't changed much. He's still talking about preaching and teaching and leaders in the church and factionalism and division, unnecessary division more precisely. They bragged about who baptized them. Paul, Solace, Christ. They're the really holy ones, right? Paul counters, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. They boasted about the wisdom and power of their preachers. And Paul rebuts with, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And now Paul continues to rebuke them about the eloquence of preaching. When I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech. That wasn't my point. That's not why I came and preached the gospel to you. Since the ministry of the gospel as exercised by the pastors is important for the health of the church, Paul is spending this time here hammering down the right kind of ministry. So let us look more carefully at the sacred text to learn and to be edified by the Spirit through Paul of what the church should have and should agree upon and not be divided over in these matters of the ministry and of preaching in particular. The first point, preaching Christ crucified. That famous phrase here you've probably heard and read many a time in your Christian life. He first starts out, I, brethren... And so he's still a fellow saint. He's not talking to them just merely only as a father. I look down to you as children, although he does that elsewhere in the epistles. But here he comes alongside him. I, brethren, we are one in Christ Jesus, and I'm not better than you inherently as such, but by virtue of God's grace. And, of course, God has made me an apostle, as he (laughs) reminded them in the beginning here, chapter 1, verse 1, as he often does. When I came to you did not come with excellence of speech. When he came to them, came to whom? To the Christians at the city of Corinth in southern Greece. 
when he brought the gospel to them, is what he's talking about. We read in Acts chapter 18, verse 4, where he preached and taught there. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. I don't make these connections on purpose, brothers and sisters. God's providence that it ties to this morning's sermon about the synagogue and the Sabbath and whatnot. And Paul doing the same thing that Christ did. Going to where the religious people are and preaching to them because they would let them talk and preach. And he was able to do that. And he reasoned with them in the synagogue every Sabbath, so every Saturday there at the time, and persuaded both Jews and Gentiles there in the city of Corinth. But Luke tells us something else going on when Paul is there at Corinth. And it was probably the case elsewhere as the opportunity arose. We read in chapter 18, verse 1, a few verses earlier, after these things, Paul departed from Athens, went to Corinth, verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, and so because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Remember, Paul had a job on the side. He didn't just preach. He made tents. And he made them when he could to support himself. He argues elsewhere in the epistles so that he would not burden the churches because they were young churches, probably not a lot of money. They certainly were not established as our churches are established. You establish what? Wealth over years and savings. Brand new, fresh baby churches. And Paul takes the extra step of saying, I will work Extra on the side. Paul taught them, yes, and in the synagogues, yes, but he also worked among them. Paul lived there among them for a time. And thus this brings, I would argue, a personal touch to his pleading to the church of Corinth. In a way that, I don't know, someone like me, who just happened to hear what's going on there and told to reprimand them, reprimand them, they don't know me from a hole in the wall. Paul was there. And Paul brought many to Christ, and Paul worked among them with his hands. And so he came to them, and coming to them, he became one with them in many ways. But he came to them, of course, not with, as he says here in verse 1, with the excellence of speech or the wisdom of declaring to you the testimony of God. And I'll break that down here into two subpoints: the excellence of speech and the wisdom of words. The excellence of speech or elevated speech or superior speech, Eloquence, perhaps some people say. Paul, was, in other words, was trying, not trying to impress them with his speaking prowess. That's his point. Just like he didn't come to baptize them so they could brag about his baptism, that's why he was happy he didn't baptize a lot of people. I'm thankful I didn't have a lot of baptism because that would be one more thing for you to argue about. That was his point, wasn't it? But of course, in the grand scheme of things, he's thankful to baptize people because he brings them to Christ. You see, that's how the rhetoric works. Don't forget that. He's emphasizing the hammer and look at how bad it is. Look what you're making me say, kind of a kind of a thing. I, you know, obviously he, baptism's a wonderful thing. But not if it brings division. That's how much he's against division in the church or unnecessary divisiveness and hatred and factualism in the body of Christ. And a similar thing's going on here. Paul says, I, uh, did not come to you with excellence of speech. I'm not coming to you because I'm a great orator and I thought I can impress you. He was not treating 
he was not there treating the event as a speech club or school exercise to show who was the best. He didn't want the divisions in the Church of Corinth to be centered on how well you speak or who baptized you or who was your leader. It's not what he wants. Words of wisdom, an overlapping idea. You could look at it, I suppose, as two different things. He's eloquent and what he says is really clever and wise or perhaps overlapping ideas because we'll see a little later um, how wisdom is used with respect to power and influence that perhaps the idea of wisdom is I'm very wise, can't you see how well I speak my eloquence? They're overlapping ideas. But either way, he's pointing out it's not about the speaking as much, how you speak and the like, or as we talked about earlier, wisdom and how clever they are perhaps and how they say and how they present their speaking and preaching because the Jews, of course, uh, sought after a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Not necessarily the wisdom of salvation, but something of wisdom and of cleverness and things along those lines, and philosophy especially. And Paul says, I'm not here about that. I'm not here about how how clever I am, how, how good my presentation is. Quit abusing this approach to the ministry. It's not what the ministry is about in preaching in the church. We know this is the point because he is attacking preaching, which gained its sole impact through great oratory skill, apparently. It depended on eloquence for its effect and wisdom, which was wisdom in man's eyes, but not in God's. And I say that because, obviously, Christ spoke words of wisdom. Christ spoke words. It's not against wisdom per se the wrong kind of wisdom. It's not against eloquence necessarily either. I would argue the Psalms are very excellent of speech itself. We sing them, don't we? And so again, as a rhetorical evidence, as he highlights and exaggerates for effect, no matter how good I was at speaking and preaching and how excellent I was, that wasn't why I was here. Don't get hung up on that. Just like the idea of baptism. People were abusing good speech and apparently falling for the pastor who was the greater orator. Isn't this wonderful? And hey, people are being brought to, to Christ apparently through this oration. And he's like, it's not, that's what it's about. You get brought to Christ through the gospel, through the content of the speech and of Jesus and his might and power. It's the only thing that makes sense of this text. It's not very clear. What are you talking about? Excellence of speech, Paul. You think it's okay to talk like a dummy when you preach? Just be gibberish? No, of course not. A thousand times no. Christ was nothing like that. The Psalms are nothing like that. It's the abuse of it, again, like baptism. They take a good thing and twist it and make division in the church over it. I'm a Paul. Not only did he baptize me, he's a great preacher. He's the best preacher there is. No, no. Apollos, he's the best preacher. Don't you remember Acts 18? He did all the great preaching there. Something like that is going on here. And he's saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. Enough of that. Away with that. It's the wrong type of wisdom. It's pride in the way they spoke or preached, apparently. It's dependence upon the form of speaking instead of upon the content of the speech itself and upon God who saves through that content the good news of Jesus Christ. And so he continues with this strong way of speaking. And when he came to them, not with excellence of speech only or merely, or of wisdom, 
man-made wisdom or cleverness of some sort, declaring to you the gospel of the testimony of God, my testimony, my witness. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I think when we hear that, we know intuitively he's not saying that. I know that sounds like a, maybe a clever, wise way of speaking. But to get your attention, I don't believe anybody takes it literally. Paul's saying, well, I don't want you to say anything at church except the words Jesus and him crucified. So that would be the most narrow way of understanding it. I don't think any Christian actually literally takes that text that way. They understand it's shorthand for something else, the way he's speaking here about the gospel. And so they would say, well, it's about Christ and his life and death. Obviously, they could talk about the first four books of Jesus Christ. That would be a good thing to preach about, wouldn't it? And yet, 1 Corinthians one thirty, we read, But of him are ye in Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and wisdom. And so Paul is saying, not just except I only hear Jesus Christ and him crucified, but about the life of Christ. And not just the life of Christ, the death of Christ, but all that's entailed in Christ, that he's our righteousness, he's our wisdom. He's our justification. And more than that, Paul preached repentance and holiness, as does Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when we read here, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, he's highlighting one aspect of the entirety of what a pastor is called to preach, what a church is called to believe. Again, for effect, to get his audience to wake up What are you doing dividing over how good a preacher preaches, how clever he is with his words, and who baptized you? It's about Jesus, we would say today. But we know when we say it's about Jesus, like perhaps on a bumper sticker, we know it's actually more than just Jesus, but his life, his death, what he does for us right now, repentance, the law of God, right? The whole kit and bit of caboodle. Acts 20, Paul said, I refrain not preaching the whole counsel of God. So he's highlighting this principle of the gospel and all of its effects, of course, but focusing especially upon him and him crucified, partly because the crucifixion of Christ was foolishness, right? But we preach Christ, verse 23, crucified, dead, on the cross, to the Jews, a stumbling block. What kind of a Messiah is this dying? He's supposed to take over the world and conquer the Romans. How offensive is that to them? Very offensive. And to the Greeks, foolishness. A God who dies? What? And so he's picking up that sub-theme in his argument, right? I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified because I'd rather have that than the worldly wisdom, quote-unquote. Cleverness of speech. I'd rather have the foolishness of the gospel. So I think he's picking up that rhetoric without quite saying it that way. That sub-theme he mentioned before. I, I read chapter 1, verse 30, 23. The principle he's highlighting is that God saves sinners. He changes us with the power and through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the continual stress upon power in 1 Corinthians 1.18 and in 24, so 18 we read, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who perish, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So foolishness, they call the power of God foolish. That's what they're saying, verse 18. Verse 24, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, 
Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want real wisdom, you want real power, you need the gospel. And then verses 4 and 5 here of chapter 2, and my speech was, and my preaching were not persuasive words of human wisdom. It wasn't how good I was in argue, arranging my argument, but demonstration of what? The spirit and of power. In verse 5, that your faith should be not in man's wisdom, but in the power of God. And you see in those verses a contrast between wisdom and power as summated here in verse 5 of chapter 2. That your faith should not be, it shouldn't be in the wisdom of men, but your faith should be in the power of God. And in English you're thinking, at least I am, what do you get, well, how do you get from wisdom to power or foolishness? You know, where's wisdom and power? Wouldn't you say impotent to power and power to, and wouldn't those be the antinomy, the opposite? How do you get, apparently the wisdom would be my demonstration of my Preaching a persuasive power ability of verse 4 with persuasive words is the one that converts you, brings you to heaven, or shows how clever you are, or something along those lines. And he's saying, no, 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 it's the gospel that saves. That's where the power is. If they are saved through your argument, it's not your argument, persuasive words per se, but the Spirit of God who used them. Because you know, and we've all done it, you can preach to your blue in the face, or teach, or instruct somebody, and they don't want to believe because God hasn't touched them with his power. And so they were focused on the wrong thing. <laughs> focused on absolutely the wrong thing. Christians. It reminds us again, Christians are sinners. And Corinth was dealing with a serious problem. Their cleverness, they thought, was a way of, a powerful way to make change in the church of some sort. And he's like, no. <laughs> the ministry is not about that. It's about Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, as we know in particular, in which he changes lives and brings them to heaven. In other words, it's the content that matters more than the delivery. We ought to have both if we can, of course. I took speech class in college many, many moons ago, uh, and of course I had practice here. But we shouldn't so emphasize the eloquence, the delivery, the persuasive ability over the power of God Almighty in the gospel. And it happens, unfortunately. Today, many, many churches push form and presentation over content. And I don't just mean you know, the deep content of Presbyterianism. Just basic gospel content, even. I've seen it, unfortunately. I've listened to some of it. I haven't done it in a long time. You, know, it gets, you can imagine how tiresome that is, trying to find out what's going on in other churches. And I don't want to be a negative person all the time. So I stop that. But it's there. You probably have friends. It may be a temptation to us sometimes in Reformed circles. And uh, yes, the Reformed churches may need less dry preaching, to be sure. But a dry morsel of protein that empowers you is better than a sugary cola that feels really good at first, but you get a downer and crash. I mean, that's all there is to it. The power of preaching Christ, verses 3 to 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words. So he's reiterating in some ways and unpacking his thoughts in verse 1. Weakness and fear. He uses this phrase a few times in the epistles. And perhaps as an expression of his dependence upon God. Um, and that he doesn't take these things lightly. It's not a little thing to him to be a minister or apostle in particular. While presenting the gospel and the New Testament truth to them. not He's not saying, I came to you scared spitless, but rather I came to you knowing my limitations, fearing God, 
as I brought the gospel to you. There's the context here, right? In verse 1, when I declare to you the testimony of God or his witness of Jesus Christ. He speaks of, in verse eight, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18, a powerful speech. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God, not the persuasive words of human wisdom and like things. Rather, the gospel. Pastors and churches should not seek out power and effective preaching from other sources than God Almighty. God has all the power we need in the gospel. Clever gimmicks beyond simple preaching and teaching are not needed, as though the gospel of Jesus Christ was helpless without it. It is not. Paul is saying, and we've got some of his speeches in Acts, I wouldn't say they were terrible speeches. I wouldn't say, well, he's just, he, couldn't, he couldn't communicate a lot. What's his problem? Rather, again, he wasn't there. That wasn't his point to use persuasive words of human wisdom to sound like he was very smart or clever or pat himself on the back or help make divisions. Something that can come from good and used for evil, obviously, as in the case of baptism. But in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. And what does that look like? What does the power of God look like when he speaks of this language here? We know it doesn't mean what the charismatics think or what other people think, unfortunately, who are confused in this matter. It is first and foremost the saving of souls. The regeneration of sinners, the justification of the wicked, as well as adoption into the family of God. And he continues in the Christian life in many different avenues. And we have this language of power used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. The power to change is seen in a few different ways. It gives men spiritual wisdom. He picks up that theme here in verses 7 and following, verses 11 through 16 in particular, that we know the things of the Spirit of God because we have the Spirit of God, because that's the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians 4.20, it brings men under the kingdom rule of God Almighty, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know... Not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. He picks up that idea, apparently, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's not about how clever your speech is. You went to the great Greek oratory professors. Listen to them. Wow, this guy's great. Rather, instead of those who are puffed up, but those with the power, the power of God Almighty, and the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The power of the Spirit to bring salvation and life. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the power He speaks of, and it brings people into the kingly rule of Jesus Christ. And this power is firmly set against sin. 1 Corinthians 5.3 in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have the authority, you have the authority, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their power isn't just in the narrow sense of being born again, that first step of regeneration, but in the continuous life of the Christian in which discipline is required in their life. And the church brings discipline. And the power in the name of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 5. That power, the power of the truth, right? The content of the message of Jesus Christ, 
of our Lord and Savior, of the Messiah, coming to live and to die for his people can never be replaced by clever speech. In this day of preachers galore, and we have preachers galore, anybody can just stop and say, I'm a preacher. Listen to me. Easily found in cities and YouTubes and podcasts, let not their smooth speech mislead you from the content. Are they faithful to the word of God? Do they give the power and wisdom of God to the audience? Or is it about them? and the factionalism they bring with them. Then any eloquence they have, if they have the truth, is just a bonus. Rejoice in the truth they present, and not as much in the eloquence that they offer. Why is Paul spilling so much ink in this discussion, chapter 1, and here into chapter 2? Why concern about wisdom, power, and preaching? Because Paul wants their faith to be in Christ and not in man, verse 5. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. As we, as I explained before, how wisdom is explained on one hand in contrast with power on the other, that is the so-called wisdom, quote-unquote, of the world and of clever speech, is not powerful enough to change people. It's the gospel that does that and brings salvation. They should not put their confidence in how well a preacher speaks, but in God who saves through that content of that speech. They mention Paul. They mention Christ. They mention Apollos. You think they weren't preaching the gospel? Of course they were. But apparently those in the pews were taken smitten even by some of the way they spoke and how eloquent they were that they'd rather have a faction and divide the church over who baptized whom and who was a greater preacher than in the content therein. That word, translated faith, that your faith should not be in wisdom, can simply mean confidence, and I think that's what, is, what he's saying here. I don't believe he's saying, you know, your faith is in the wisdom of men. Well, if your faith is in the wisdom of men, you're not a Christian. By definition. I don't think we get that at all in these verses. He's not saying you're not, what's your problem? He called them brethren in verse 1. And so here, the accent, as it were, on the word faith is confidence. Don't put your confidence in the wisdom of men. You Christians, you can misplace your confidence to be sure. It happens. We fall short. We have a misapplication, a misbelief, a mistrust of people and institutions at time when we should be a little more cautious. Not that you don't ever, but you put too much weight, as, as it were. And here they put too much weight upon the wisdom and the clever speech and the eloquence and all the likes like that, all things like that, and not in the power that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They were trusting in the preacher's cleverness and wisdom to bring them, to bring others to heaven apparently, putting a little more weight over there than they should, and forgot it's the content. Are they preaching the truth? Is it God's truth? Is it clearly presented, as we saw this morning, in the ministry of Jesus Christ? It's important not to put confidence in preachers more than the message of the preacher. Let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, in God's mercy upon us, in the gospel, what the world calls foolishness, that we know is really wisdom, and it's power and not impotence. 
And let us reject the temptation to divide over preachers. But rather, let us rejoice in God's truth of that gospel, that the good news is God's power unto a new life and our Savior and Lord. Let us pray. We thank you, God Almighty. We thank you for this truth here where Paul hammers home the importance of the content of the gospel, of the good news, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and that we should continue always to put our confidence in that. We may feel impotent in many ways, God, especially in this day and age, it seems like and it feels that we can't get many people to hear us, many people to change. Nevertheless, God, may we not put our faith in the wisdom of men, but always trust in your message, God, to save souls. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. 411, 411. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.